John Newton was a slave trader before he was converted to Christ. A foul-mouthed man who caused many people much suffering. But he was wonderfully and mightily changed by Jesus Christ. And of course we're familiar with the words that he used to sum up his experience of the grace of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Then the third verse he says, it was grace that brought, uh, sorry, through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. And those are a wonderful summary of biblical truth. And today we turn to Genesis chapter 26. And this is the one chapter in Genesis that is given over completely to the activities of Isaac. You could almost be forgiven for thinking that Isaac only lived a short life. Uh, in the light of how much time and space is given to his life in scripture. But he actually lived 180 years. This chapter records a series of activities or events or experiences that happened in his life. It gives us no clue as to when the events occurred. It seems to be a chapter that suspends time and takes us aside from what's happening in the next generation, Jacob and Esau, to let us stand back and see some other things that happened in the life of their parents, Isaac and Rebekah. To date, the whole focus has been on the kingdom in the next generation. Uh, as it's passed on by um, Isaac and Rebekah. And of course that is very, very important. That is at the heart of your life and my life also. That we would pass on the faith to our children. That we would pass on the faith to the next generation in the church. That we would communicate the faith to those who are outside of Christ and outside of the church and see a new generation begun in the church. And in many respects, that is our major work. And I think we learn that when we look at Isaac and Rebecca. And so much of the narrative of their life and experience is bound up with their two sons. And, but now, we're allowed to stand back and to see, well, passing on the faith to the next generation and bringing up the next generation, that's not the only thing that we're involved in. Nor was it the only thing that Isaac was involved in. 
And so this chapter seems to suspend time to give an overview of the things that Isaac experienced during his long life of 180 years beyond the challenges of family life, which we have already considered. We need to remember Isaac is the key individual in his generation in whom God works salvation. He's not the only, but he's the key person. And he is the key individual through whom God will extend his covenant salvation to future generations, leading ultimately to Christ. His life was one in which the covenant promise was in constant danger of being destroyed. And I find that significant. The covenant promise was in constant danger of being damaged, destroyed, and uh, not capable or not passed on and handed down. And of course, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam was told, and Eve was told, that the seed of the serpent and the serpent himself would fight against the seed of the woman, the godly line. And so the covenant promise in Isaac's case was in danger of being destroyed, first of all, through Rebekah's barrenness. If there wasn't a child, the covenant couldn't be passed on. Then we have the favoritism shown by Isaac uh, to Esau and Sarah, or, um, Rebekah to Jacob. And then we have the flagrant ungodliness of Esau, though brought up in a covenant environment. And then we have the outward conformity of Jacob. And then all the sibling rivalry where um, Jacob gets the birthright. Um, and as we're going to see in the next chapter, gets the blessing. So as we look at this chapter, we've got to ask the question, what is the truth the Holy Spirit intends us to learn from it? What dangers are we being alerted to here that threaten the promise of Messiah coming? It seems to me that this chapter teaches us we inherit the kingdom of God and we pass it on to the next generation through many tribulations. That's why we read from Acts chapter 14. Tribulations in the family, tribulations in the workplace, in the community, in the church. And so the title of our sermon this morning is uh, Entering the Kingdom or Inheriting the Kingdom Through Many Dangers, to use Newton's words. And we want to look at this chapter this morning and also this evening. First of all, let's think about Entering the kingdom through adversity. Through adversity. Or through circumstances around us that go against us. Hardships in life. We're looking at verses 1 to 6. This is the second time we read of a famine striking Canaan. 
the first time was shortly after Abraham had entered the land of promise. And here now we have Isaac living in the land of promise. He is where God wants him to be in life. But there is famine. Now, there is a temptation to us to think, if I am where God wants me to be, doing what God wants me to do, then everything will be plain sailing. And indeed, there is a form of teaching today which says that within the Christian church. God wants us all to be wealthy, healthy, and strong. And both thoughts and both teachings are unbiblical. Because Isaac and Abraham are where God wants them to be, and yet they experience famine. We know in Genesis 12 that in the case of Abraham, he went down to Egypt. Egypt was the breadbasket of Africa. And Abram's response a hundred years earlier involved leaving Canaan, leaving the land of promise to which the Lord had recently brought him. And he left without asking the Lord. Or he left, and he left also without any command from the Lord to do so. And so here now we have Isaac. And it seems, from the way in which this is written, that Isaac is contemplating doing the same thing. That the Lord clearly doesn't expect them to stay and die, but he expects them, Abraham, in the past, Isaac now, to trust him and to look to him for guidance. So Isaac, in response to the famine, leaves Beersheba. That's the place he has been since his father's death, chapter 25, verse 11. It's the place we're told specifically the Lord was blessing him. And now he travels to Gerar. I'd intended to have a map. I'd forgotten to send it. And maybe Hazel's thankful that I forgot to send it. She's nodding her head here. Um, but if you imagine Palestine being my hand here, and you've got the, um, the Mediterranean Sea down here, right down in this corner here in the south of the land, you've got a little sandwich like my finger on the land of Canaan, and that's, that's the land of the Philistines. That's the area of the Philistines. That's southwest corner of Palestine, heading down towards Egypt. Gerar is in the land of promise. And obviously, it is not affected by the famine. It is occupied by the Philistines. But clearly, Isaac intends to continue to Egypt. Because look at verse 2. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And so, um, then the next uh, verse says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. 
So the Lord knows Isaac's intentions as he knows our hearts, our thoughts, um, our plans. We don't have to tell him. He knows them because he is God. And he commands Isaac not to go to Egypt. Egypt had not been a good experience for Abraham. Almost certainly that's where he got Hagar, the servant that he ended up having Ishmael to. But the Lord doesn't just command him not to go there. He also promises him, I will be with you and bless you. Think about it. Famine. A family to feed. Animals to feed. Servants to look after. And he's told you can't do this. And the Lord doesn't leave him hanging there. No, he says, but I will be with you. I will bless you even in this time of famine. I wonder if we think of adversity in that way. When there are difficult experiences coming into our lives, whatever form they take, how do we think about them? We should think about them, that the Lord is with us in them. And the Lord will bless us through them. That's why he allows them to come into our lives. And sometimes I think that maybe the way we pray is not necessarily always um, comprehensive enough. Because we pray about the adversity But we don't actually pray, Lord, help me to learn the things you want me to learn through this adversity. Develop me as a Christian through this adversity. Because that's what the Lord intends to do with Isaac. I will be with you and I will bless you. How reassuring, how encouraging. And if you're in adversity this morning and... Uh, It's very challenging for you and you're wondering what the Lord is doing to you and why the Lord has sent this to you. Then hold on to that truth. I will be with you and bless you. We see it illustrated in the New Testament. Here's the disciples in the boat. The storm is whipping up. And it's a fierce storm. They're experienced fishermen. They think this storm is going to take our lives. Where was Christ? He was with them. Yes, they weren't too pleased that he was sleeping. But though he was sleeping, he was fully in control. And he was only sleeping, of course, as a man. Um, So, and he did bless them through that. So, he wants to deepen our faith. He wants to deepen our prayer life. He wants to develop the fruit of the Spirit. He wants us to be more heaven-focused. All of these things, more kingdom-centered and in the midst of our adversity. And then he affirms uh, his covenant. I think it's wonderful too how he says, Look, my purpose has not changed. 
I will give all these lands to you and your descendants. And I will perform the oath which I swore to your Abraham, your father. When adversity comes into our lives or some setback, we think it's all up. It's over. Got to find plan B. And where do I go from here? The Lord says, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed in my purpose. Yes, I've allowed this to come into your life, but my purpose is still the same. And then uh, you see at the very end, he reminds him of Abraham's obedience in the midst of adversity. And you see, the Lord is showing Isaac here. Isaac, here's how I want you to respond. Yes, I'm giving you a command, but I'm making you a promise. And I'm affirming my purpose. And also, I want to remind you of Abraham's obedience. And that's what I'm looking for in you. And look at Isaac, verse 6. In response, Isaac dwelt in Gerar. He obeyed. Okay, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm happy, Lord. I'm going to stay here, Lord. I'm not going to Egypt. I'm going to obey your command. I'm going to hold on to your promise. I'm going to await your purpose to be unfolded. And I'm going to stand where my father stood before me. Isn't that wonderful? In adversity, he's doing this. In the New Testament, we read there from Acts chapter 14, and Paul urged these new believers in these freshly formed churches in Asia Minor to continue in the faith. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying that they're not yet Christians. You could say it, put it like, we must inherit the kingdom of God. There's no way we will get to heaven without tribulations. And some of them are very difficult and they can be um, last for a long period of time. They may last all our lives. But we are to continue in faith. That's what we find Isaac doing. I think that's a wonderful truth that we're learning this morning. Here's this man who lived for 180 years and here's one example of adversity. There were no doubt many others in his life. And he continued in faith. Am I willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? Are we willing to do that as a church? Whatever setbacks, whatever disappointments, we remember it's through many tribulations on our part that the church of Christ is built. Look at Paul. And you can't but see it written there in capital letters. You see, Christ does not wrap you and me up in cotton wool. He doesn't take us out of the world and put us in a spiritual glass house where we just flourish and we 
Um, we everything's warm and comfortable, and there's no threats or no dangers. And he's there as the divine gardener that keeps feeding us and keeps the the germs and the bugs and one thing and another away from us. And the troubles, no. We become stronger through adversity. As Paul wrote to the Romans, it's through tribulation that we learn endurance and perseverance and inherit the kingdom. We've too, we, we've conformed, I think, too much to the easygoing expectation of our generation, which wants no hardship, hasn't known any hardship. That makes us flabby as Christians. We get blown over by the slightest little gust <clears throat> in our face. We say, well, what's God doing now? Where's God now? He's left me now, or whatever. God, the Lord, sustains and strengthens us and his church through adversity, whether that's illness or unemployment or accident or drought or disease or recession. You put in there whatever it is is in your life. <clears throat> and so we're either, when we come into adversity, we're inclined to um, think that God has forgotten us instead of this response of faith. Or the other thing that we do, which is not a response of faith, is we try to handle it in our own way. And we sort it out as we think. And so like, Abra like Abraham and like Isaac here, we are for Egypt. We're for Egypt. And nobody's going to stop us. And we spend our time exploring other possibilities instead of praying, Lord, help me to believe your promises. Help me to hold on to your revealed will. Um, help me to wait for you to open up the way. And so in adversity, let us hold fast to that precious promise. I will be with you and bless you. Let's notice then, secondly, and this is the only other point we have this morning. Through many dangers, we inherit the kingdom, and now we're thinking about fear. Fear. Through fear, or despite fear. Moving to a new school, a new job, a new place to live, is not easy. You've done it. You'll know that. It takes time. It takes effort to get to know the locality, uh, to adjust. In fact, leaving one place, especially if it's unexpected and unplanned and it happens um, um, outside of our thinking, but it's clearly the will of God, it can be like a bereavement. It's a loss of friendships and relationships and uh, experiences and activities. And you go to the new place and it takes time to get to know not only the place but the people who live there, the customs, the culture, the way of doing things. And if you're going to another country, then there's the language it's not just children 
who have fears about new situations. Isaac, as he moves in among the Philistines, um, though he has this promise of the Lord, I will be with you, and he knows that the purpose of the Lord will unfold and the blessing of the Lord will be upon him, Look at what we read. Verse 7. The men of the place asked him about his wife. So he said, uh, sorry, and she said, she is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife, lest the men of the place should kill me for Rebecca, because she is beautiful to behold. And if you're having a deja vu moment, have I not read this before somewhere? You're absolutely right. Because his father did exactly the same thing. And it seems unthinkable that Isaac wouldn't have known of that. And that, remember, this is the day of oral tradition and transmission of the scripture. So the things that are going to be recorded in scripture... They're not at this stage being written down. They're being passed on orally. And so Abraham would have talked to Isaac about that experience before, which happened before Isaac was born. And Abraham had experienced the same fear. Um, sorry, that was in chapter, yes, chapter 20. Um, Genesis chapter 20. And you remember Abraham told the same story there was some truth in it a little truth because they were related but the reality is it wasn't the truth because they were husband and wife Abraham and Sarah and it's not the truth here because Isaac and Rebekah are husband and wife if you go back to Abraham's case if the Lord had not intervened it would have ended in disaster because the one of the Philistines had taken Sarah and had planned to make her his wife. Yet Isaac, knowing that, follows suit. It shows us, does it not, the power of fear. And in fact, as I was, somebody was talking to recently, we were talking about fear. And fear is, can be so irrational. So irrational. It's not based on any concrete or hard evidence. In fact, here in this situation, the Philistines don't even take Rebecca. Uh, so it's not even the same situation as Abraham had to contend with. But fear is often irrational. And it's not built on the facts. And part of the challenge to us as Christians is to say, well, what is it that I'm precisely afraid of? Do you think of someone who... Um, who's not feeling well and they know there's something wrong in their health and they begin to fear we can begin to fear the worst oh this is cancer or whatever it may be cancer but it may not it may be serious or it may not now the right thing to do there is not to sit and, and or to live with this fear day after day but is to go and get the thing checked out um, but fear is irrational, and when it's irrational, it holds us 
in a prison, in a grip. And uh, it keeps us from doing what is right. And that's what happens here. Um, so um, Isaac resorts uh, to this lie. And then look at verse 8. Um, he's there a long time. This is not just, he's not just there for a few days, uh, but this is a lengthy period that he stays at Gerar. So Isaac gets away with his lie for a long time. God doesn't always um, allow us to run up short accounts. Sometimes they can be lengthy accounts of sin. And the Lord eventually or in the end exposes it when Abimelech, and that's probably a throne name, not a personal name. So it's a bit like you come into Caesar Augustus or Julius Caesar in the New Testament. And Caesar was a throne name that every king had. I think Abimelech is a throne name that the Philistines had because there's an earlier Abimelech and there's a later Abimelech in the time of, um, I think it's David. Um, and so... I think that suggests that it's a throne name probably. It's certainly not the same person as in Abraham's time. Um, and so he observes Isaac, verse 8, showing endearment. I think the NIV has it caressing, which is perhaps too particular. But certainly he was showing some kind of affection that Abimelech knew. You don't do that to your sister. You would only do that with your wife. Um, and so verse 9 um, Abimelech uh, faces Isaac with the truth clearly she is your wife reminds us does it not of Numbers 32-23 be sure your sins will find you out and when we are in the grip of fear we can be tempted to try to do something, to say something that is wrong, to cover some situation. And the devil tells us nobody else knows. That's not true. Because God knows. God knows. And God loves us so much that he, want, he will bring us to repentance. And bringing us to repentance means bringing it to our attention. And bringing it out. To us, so that we will confess it and acknowledge it. Now it's better that we do that ourselves than the Lord have to do it. And there's no more humbling and embarrassing way than when the Lord has to do it through an unbeliever, somebody who's not a Christian. And they have to say to you, hold on here. You said, you did, and you are, and you claim. You've been there. We know what it's like. Um, and that's what happens here. But notice the two results that come, that flow out of this. And it's how God, in his grace, even our sin, he overrules it for good. Even our sin, when it's confessed, he overrules it for good. Because now Abimelech commands the Philistine men, you do not touch that woman. 
Okay, so there's a, a ring of steel or protection put around um, Rebecca. Clearly, Abimelech knows what happened in the past when um, um, they were almost judged as a nation because of what had been done to uh, what was going to for the um, for them having taken Sarah. And then there's another blessing which we will come to tonight. Verse 12. Did you notice I mentioned earlier about a long time? He'd been there a long time. Notice now what it says in verse 12. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Is there a connection between the uncovering of Isaac's sin, his lie, and the blessing of God coming? I think there is. Because that's the next thing we're told. That while Isaac was living a lie before the Philistines and before God, the blessing that God intended for him was hemorrhaged or was halted, it was held back. Um, because it's immediately after this, then Isaac sowed in that land. And reaped in the same year. And isn't it remarkable too. That God would bless us. And keeps on blessing us. Even though we sin against him. And we grieve him. And we dishonor him. Before others. But the point I want us to see here is. That it all began with fear. Do you see the contrast? Faith on the one hand and fear on the other. Faith in the midst of adversity and then this fear, this irrational fear about something that's very personal. Yes, we can trust God for the big things. Yes, I don't have any problem with that. But when it comes down to something very personal, very intimate to me, well now I've got to help God here. It almost seems like that, doesn't it? So, fear of man and failure to believe the Lord's earlier promise led Isaac into this sin. Because the Lord's purpose, if the Lord was with him, he was going to be with, he was meaning I'm with Rebecca as well. I will keep her. I will keep you where you're going. And so, let's think about fear. Let's guard against this irrational fear. This fear in our personal circumstances. This fear that causes us to say, well, I could be shunned. I'll be uh, a fear of being mocked, fear of being isolated, fear of being sacked. can cause many a Christian to be silent when they should speak out. And so rob us of the blessing of God until we face up to that sin and confess it. We need to learn from Isaac, not only in the first point with regard to adversity, how to overcome it, but also we need to learn how to deal with irrational 
fear. Fear that contradicts the word of God. And not to resort to sin to accommodate it. But by faith to overcome it, holding fast. And you think of our Savior, and as he was contemplating the cross, was there not um, a sense in which his whole, there was surely a sense in which his whole being wanted to avoid that cross, draw back from it. He knew that the, what it was going to entail in terms of suffering, and yet he embraced it rather than dishonor his father. And we're to be like our saviour. So, through many dangers, through adversity, through fear, and who knows how many other times Isaac experienced fear, but we're being taught it here as one of the features that marked his long life. Let's learn uh, to continue in faith through many tribulations looking to Christ drawing strength from him remembering his promise pushing down pushing out our fears bringing our fears to the Lord and leaving them with him Amen